Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, Scott. Hey, James. How's it going? I'm good. How are you this week? Well, it's my favorite time of the week. Yeah, we get to hang out. Time for another episode. Let's do this. And we got a listener question today. Okay. You want to read it or you want me to read it? You read it today. I'll read it. Here is the question. So this question says, I just recently found your podcast when I was looking for some info on Mega Backdoor Roths. Thanks for all the info. You guys are really a wealth of knowledge. Thanks. And then, Yeah, thank you. Question continues. In an older episode where you guys were talking about asset locations, one of you mentioned that if you have dividend paying stocks, you should hold them in retirement account so you don't get messed up with paying taxes on the dividends. I have been under the understanding that investment dividends are taxed at long-term capital gain rates. So for married filing jointly, you would need to make over $80,000 in dividend income before you pay any taxes in 2020. If this is the case and your dividend stock or fund paid 2% per year, you would have to hold $4 million to reach that first 15% threshold. In this case, taxable accounts seem like a great place to hold dividend paying stocks if you're under that threshold, of course. Am I missing something about this? <laughs> well, thank you for the question, first of all. Yeah. And this is a good question because tax brackets, it's its not its not as if all income is taxed the exact same. And there's different thresholds for different types of income and different types of income pay different tax brackets on top or tax rates is on top of those tax brackets. So yeah. let's do our best to simplify what can be a confusing and messy tax code in some ways. Sure. Let's do it. Um, should we just, let's start by looking at, let's talk about taxable investments is a good place to start. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So, um, uh, the listener's not wrong. Um, the rule is if you have $80,000 or less of taxable income, you are technically in a 0% long-term capital gains rate federally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But what's the, there's a big, it depends. There's a big, it depends. And this depends on, do you have other income, yeah. which would be considered ordinary income, which could be, uh, typically it's going to be salary. It could be social security. It could be pension. It could be rental income. It could be other income types that you have. Yeah. So all of that. So at the end, like if, if, uh, if James makes, you know, let's say James makes a hundred thousand dollars a year and he contributes, let's just, let's just pretend that the 401k amount can be uh, he's going to contribute $10,000. And then let's just uh, assume that the that he's going to get the standard deduction of, of $12,000. Yep. So I'm, and I'm not making, these aren't the actual numbers. We're just pretending. You're rounding nice, clean numbers. Yep. So he makes 100 and then he saved 10 to his, uh, his 401k, but that is pre-tax. So now his tax one comes down to 90. And then he has another uh, 12,000. Didn't I say 12? Yeah, I said 12. I think you said 12, yeah. was your standard deduction. So you're down to... 78. Yes, 78,000. So if if so at that point, he basically has room of $2,000 where he could have 
um, income from dividends and not pay any income tax on that. And the moment he crosses over that, he bumps up into the next bracket, which is the bracket most people are familiar with, the 15% bracket on long-term capital gains. Correct. And the confusing part about this is you have your ordinary income tax brackets and the tax rates, which are most people are familiar with. Those are the rates that start at 10%, then 12%, then 22, then 24, then 32, 35, 37. That's, that's current tax brackets. But there is a separate tax bracket and separate tax rates for long-term capital gains, which also includes qualified dividends. And those are the rates that if you make under $80,000, if your ordinary income is under $80,000 and you file taxes married finally and jointly, well, if that amount is under $80,000, any capital gains that you realize, she is correct. It's taxed at 0%. Mm -hmm. And then the next amount between $80,000 and $496,000 is is taxed at a higher rate. Uh, the challenge is those rates are different, but they're not mutually exclusive in the sense that income stacks on top of each other. Right. So if you had zero income, like say, for example, uh, to use her example, she said, if you have a $4 million portfolio and hypothetically there's a 2% per year dividend paid, that's $80,000. Yes. So if I had $0 in ordinary income, if I didn't work, but I had a $4 million portfolio and it generated less than $80,000 per year in qualified dividends or capital Mm -hmm. gains, that would be taxed at 0%. Yep. The challenge is most people don't have $0 in other income. If you have a salary of even $80,000, right away that puts you into the 15% tax bracket, federally speaking, for capital gains, plus whatever states might be. Right. And if you were building a $4 million portfolio that's taxable, more than likely you um, worked your way there. Just guessing. And mm-hmm. if you did, you're going to have things like Social Security, which, again, are going to count as taxable income. Correct. So make it so you'd have to own less. Correct. So that's kind of the the, the first idea. About yeah. This. So to answer the question directly, it's not wrong, like Scott said, assuming you have zero dollars in other income. But as soon as you have other income, which could be salary, it could be Social Security, it could be business distributions, anything else that you have, that math starts to not work. Yeah, but let's dive into this just a touch deeper. So we talked about um, long-term capital gains and qualified dividends have a preferential tax treatment. There's three different levels of tax. You can pay 0% for a a joint uh, married, married filing jointly if you're under $80,000 it's zero. As as, uh, James mentioned, up to the next group is up to uh, 469,000, you're at 15% or 496,000, you're at 15%. And then you go up to 20%. Um, there's also this one other little piece. Uh, it came because of uh, when we passed Obamacare. Um, if you make over $250,000 as a family, the net income, which is net investment income, which is kind of too technical to explain on the, on the pod, on like how do you actually decipher it, but there's an additional 3.8% tax. So you can basically go from either 0% to 15, to like 18.8, to 23.8 can kind of be your top tax rate federally on qualified dividends or long-term capital gains. Yeah. Can we talk about what a qualified dividend is and what a long-term capital gain is? Because I don't think we've ever broke that down before. We haven't. And a dividend, so if you own a stock and stock, uh, that company has profits that distributes, it does so via dividend. And dividends, you can receive as cash or you can have it reinvested, but essentially it's a payout from a stock or a company that you own. And there's qualified dividends and then there's just ordinary dividends. The difference 
comes down to the holding period. So depending upon how long that investment has been held, and I think, did you say it's 60 days mm-hmm. uh, for, for the holding period, for which is different than long-term capital gains holding period, which yeah. is a year or more. But for dividends, if you hold it for 60 days, it, it qualifies as a qualified dividend if it's also from a U.S. company or uh, qualifying foreign country or foreign company. Yep. So that's the main difference. And, and the breakdown is if it's an ordinary dividend, so if it's not qualified, it's automatically taxed at ordinary income rates, which are going to be higher. Yeah, that 10, 12, 22, 24, 32, 35, 37 that you'd explained before. Exactly. That progressive tax rate. Exactly, which are which are going to be higher than the uh, long-term gain tax brackets. But if it is a qualified dividend, then it's taxed the same as the long-term capital gain would be. Mm-hmm. And so just even bigger, like going a bit bigger picture than that for a second, a dividend basically just means that the company's making money and they're choosing to return some of that money back to their stockholders. And they do that through a dividend. Right. Like they, they literally just say, Hey, we're going to thank you for, for, for being an owner in our company. We're going to give you cash back. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. And we could talk a different day about whether that's the most efficient way, because it kind of gets to the heart of this question. Uh, it's not, mm-hmm. uh, but, but, but that's what it is. And then, uh, once you hold that stock for more than 60 days, you get a qualified treatment. So you get a better tax treatment than what you would get if you just held it on the short term. Right. That's designed to get you to hold stock to participate in capitalism. That's that's the intent. Um, from there, the other component is long-term capital gains. So if if, uh, if I invest in James's uh, business uh, and he's on, <laughs> you're on a public stock exchange now, James. Yep. If I invest Almost in there. that and I, and I hold his stock for more than a year, I now get long-term capital gains treatment. So when I sell the stock, I get a preferential tax treatment as well. Yes. If I hold it for less than a year, I have to pay my ordinary income tax. So again, it's trying to incentivize me to hold the stock um, to help spur growth in the economy, essentially. Correct. That's the point. Um, but now, the, the, I think the question that uh, that we've we've answered already is: it depends <laughs> on on the and and we have to stack together ordinary income and those long term uh, gains rates. But that the next iteration that it comes to, which which um, uh, the listener was kind of alluding to was we'd mentioned asset location and we'd only briefly mentioned asset location. So why don't we talk through a bit more about what it is and why it matters and and how you could think about doing it and why we would do it. Yeah, why we do it is because usually, Scott, you mentioned that there's different types of investments and whether that investment pays interest versus a long-term capital gain versus it's whether it's a short-term capital gain uh whatever it ends up being, that is taxed differently. Well, there's different types of investment accounts. You might have an IRA or 401k, which is fully tax deferred, which means as you invest in that account, no dividends, no capital gains, none of that is taxed while it's growing. It's only taxed when that money comes out. You have Roth IRAs, which any money you put in there grows tax-free forever and comes out tax-free. And you have your standard brokerage accounts or uh, just non-retirement, non-qualified accounts. And those accounts, you do pay taxes on dividends and capital gains and interest as it is paid. So what this question is based upon is why does it matter where different types of investments are held? And the reason that it matters is if you have an investment that's not very tax efficient. So let's say it's an interest payment. So if Scott lends my company money and I pay Scott back interest, that that's what a bond is, is you're paying interest on a loan you make. That's not very tax efficient. That's taxed at ordinary income rates, which can be as high as 35, 37%. Whereas if I have a capital gain, a long-term capital gain, those are taxed at much better rates. 
So the concept is let's take the accounts where we pay taxes, where you pay taxes as you go, and let's put the more tax efficient investments there. And let's put the investments that aren't very tax efficient, like bond interest or or investments that pay interest or non-qualified dividends. Let's put those in our accounts where we're not going to pay taxes anyways, because it doesn't matter how efficient or non-efficient that that income is. It's not going to be taxed regardless of what it is. So it's about understanding what's the right mix of investments for you, and then how do you put the right types of investments in the right types of accounts, as opposed to, for example, owning the same exact investment in every single account without any regard to uh, the tax treatment of any of the growth there. Yeah, I think that's a good overview. And I, I would simplify it even a touch more for you as the listener. So, you know, we talk about, everyone kind of understands the basic concept of asset allocation. What percentage should I have in stocks versus what percentage should I have in bonds? And there's lots, we've talked about that. And there's lots of ways you can think about that. Asset location. So asset allocation will help you. Let's just pretend for a second. You just think just simple numbers. You just say the, and don't, don't at me. Uh, advisors onto what future returns are going to be because we never know. But let's just pretend right now that the asset allocation is going to be 50-50 and we're going to do 50% stocks, which is on average going to return 10%. And let's just pretend that uh, forward-looking, backward-looking bonds, we're going to return five. We're going to do 50% to bonds. So the the return that we would be estimating for that portfolio would be seven and a half percent, right? Right. Just simple. But that's before taxes. Asset location matters because it's looking at how to optimize your return after taxes. Mm-hmm. You're looking at where do I go put my money so that it's the most efficient. And there are things that are <clears throat> really, really tax efficient. And there are things that are really, really tax inefficient. And you want to put the least efficient things in places that don't get taxed. Mm-hmm so that they can still do their job for you in the portfolio. And then the things that are most efficient, you want to hold in the taxable account so you can get those preferential tax treatments. Yes. Does that make sense? Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and and this is what the listener was referencing again, is she's wondering, um, how do I know what's taxed at what rate? Because that should help determine where should different investments go. Yeah. So let's just talk, let's think, let's talk that through like big picture, because like, you, you, you got to kind of sliding scale it and there's not, First of all, there's no silver bullet answer for everyone because uh, James may have, you know, a Roth IRA, a a solo 401k and a taxable account, but uh, like 80% of his money might be in his taxable account. Well, then you Mm -hmm. can't do much with, with asset location. Right. Right. If you walk in as the perfect textbook client, you're going to have a third of your money in your Roth, a third of your money in your qualified account, and a third of your money in your taxable account. Well, now we can do perfect asset location, mm-hmm. right? So it's just, you have to look at what you have, but then understand kind of how the rules work and put the rules in your favor. Right. So, yeah, and to use an example, and this is, again, just purely for hypothetical, this wouldn't actually be the case, but let's assume that I have $100,000 and 50000 is in an IRA and 50000 is in a taxable account. And let's assume that it's all stocks, but I have 50% of it in high dividend paying stocks. Maybe I'm investing in utility companies or just companies are paying a high dividend. And then the other half is maybe in your, your what you might call tech stocks. You know, it's the Amazons, the Netflix, the Facebooks that don't pay any dividend, but folks you know, on, on trying to grow and capital appreciation. Yep. Well, if I'm smart, I'm probably going to put those tech stocks in the taxable account mm-hmm. because as they're growing, I'm not paying any taxes because there's no capital gains. I only pay taxes if I, had to, if I were to sell those investments. And if I did, hopefully I'm selling at long-term capital gains rates that are pretty relatively low. And then I'm putting the high dividend stocks in my IRA, where yes, they pay dividends each year, 
but I'm not paying taxes on those dividends. So if I'm hypothetically getting the same return on each of those, let me put the right investments in the right account. So I'm not paying, or I'm paying as little in taxes as possible on that return that I can get. Yep, exactly. That's, that's the right idea. Cool. So anything else that you want to add to this? We've talked about kind of asset location, why it matters. Yep. How do you utilize it? Where should you put what? Yep. I think you should just, just as an understanding for you get now you, you obviously come with your own asset allocation, how to invest, but just when you think of the hierarchy of where assets should go, the more tax inefficient it is, the more likely you want to have that in a qualified account, like a 401k or, or in a Roth account. Um, and kind of the hierarchy that you'll see is Real estate investment trusts are going to be the most tax inefficient because they pay out 90% of their income as ordinary income. Mm -hmm. So that's going to make a lot of sense to have in retirement accounts if you can. Um, TIPS, or which we call um, treasury inflation protected securities, those are going to be ordinary income as well. Um, nominal bonds, so like uh, having the the loan that... that uh, James mentioned before, those we'd probably want to have sitting in a, in a retirement account if we can. Then you'd kind of switch to domestic equities and, and with those dividend payers, we'd probably want to, and, and kind of down that line. Then you get to emerging market stocks and then you get to international. Um, the reason why international kind of sits at the bottom is because there's, um, there's foreign tax credits that you can mm -hmm. get. Um, that if they're sitting in retirement accounts, you can't benefit from those. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of like a big, high-level, broad brushstroke, how to think through tax location or asset location. That's kind of the, the way to think of it. Yeah, awesome. Well, I think that's everything I have. Anything else you want to add? No, just, um, yeah. Great. Keep sending your questions. Yes, thank you for the question. If you're listening and you have a question, uh, we would love to answer it. So you can go to the Re Real Personal Finance website and submit a question. And we'd be happy to answer in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. There's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.